Welcome back to another episode of Oh, the Good Old Days, your time travel ticket to history's dirty little secret. This is Kinsey, and I can't even tell you what beer was popular around when I was born because I don't even drink beer. And this is Ellie, and I don't drink beer either, but I am Red Dog Beer Old. (laughs) (laughs) Your support means the world to us. You're the reason our podcast exists. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. To help us grow and reach more listeners, please consider giving us a five-star review on your favorite platform. Your ratings can make a difference in getting us discovered so we can continue to bring you these morbid and absurd moments in history. If you have an event in mind that you'd like us to cover, feel free to send us a message. We also still have a few more stickers, so if you want a free one, please go on our website and sign up. Truly, these stickers are free. We don't need your card information, and we're not going to charge you for shipping. When you get your sticker, be sure to tag us at O-the-G-O-D-P-O-D on social media and use the hashtag GodPodStickerSquad. You know what, Ellie? The glutenati has made it so I can't drink real beer. But even before I opened my third eye to see the gluten for the truly evil product that it is, I just never got into beer. I used to love beer. I used to challenge people to Irish car bombs. And my husband and I first started dating. I challenged him to a bear fight, which is where you drink three Irish car bombs in a row. And I sat down my third while he was still working on his first. I can no longer do that. (laughs) (laughs) So Irish car bomb is a full glass of Guinness with a shot of Jameson dropped into it. How were you walking after that? I used to be able to, well, okay. In my defense, I wasn't walking after that. He carried me back and he dropped me. And on this beautiful cloudy night, I looked up at the sky from the sidewalk and said, the stars are so beautiful tonight. And that's when he knew I was in trouble. (laughs) 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 And you know what? With that, it's time for our Latin word of the day. (laughs) Inundatio. And that means flood. All right, Ellie, let's wet our whistles, pick up a stein, and partake in some libations. But don't forget the floaties, because you're going to need them. Well, back in the good old days... Let's hop back to the early 19th century. Napoleon was taking some serious beatings. Central and South American countries were breaking free, and many places were tossing outdated monarchs for a taste of democracy. It was a time when the world was getting a serious makeover. And there was something else cooking too. The Industrial Revolution. Factories were cranking out stuff left and right thanks to cool new machines and tech. Companies were making more, faster. Like a global production party. Now I'm going to tell you about it. (laughs) Beginning of the end. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it truly was. (laughs) Now, let's talk about a very specific global production party. And and what's a party without beer? I mean, there's a whole reason we started talking about beer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm going to give you a little bit of a background about the London brewers of the 1800s. They were constantly trying to outdo each other. Not where it mattered, though. They didn't put their money into improving taste or production or even rewarding their employees. No, 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 no. They spent their money trying to build the world's largest beer vat. Because, you know, they couldn't drive around in Lamborghinis to compensate for 
for not winning the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest beer vat. Probably didn't exist at this, exist at this time, did it? <laughs> Wonder how many no Irish awards. car bombs you can fit in that beer vat. <laughs> so many. <laughs> <laughs> well, the vats did have a practical purpose. So here's the deal with beer making. You need the liquid to ferment inside a big vat. How long it stays depends on the type of beer. Today, vats are mostly made of stainless steel. But back in the 1800s, they used wood. Often oak. Yep, all about that old school charm. Sir Richard Mew, that that is his name. M-E-U-X. Mew. (laughs) He built the largest vat in London. It was able to hold 720,000 gallons of beer. That's a lot of Irish car bombs. (laughs) Well, that number means absolutely nothing to me. (laughs) So guess what I did, Ellie? I did the math. Ooh, of course you did. (laughs) 720,000 gallons is 92,160,012 ounce bottles of beer. That means if you drank a 24-pack every single day, you would need 875 years to drink that vat's contents. I mean, you'd probably live for 875 years because you'd be preserved from all the alcohol. (laughs) Quite possibly, quite possibly. (laughs) (laughs) The true secret to a long life. (laughs) Would you still have a liver, though? Liver schmiver. They can grow them in test tubes now. Get it replaced. Uh, yeah, I think AI can do that, right? Yeah, like, pro- probably. Just order a new liver on an app. <laughs> Amazon will be there soon. You <laughs> just got to find the right people to take the organs from. Well, just to keep it in perspective, the St. Louis, Missouri Anheuser Busch Brewery has 63 tanks in their cellar alone with about 113,000 gallons per tank. So modern day breweries hold more beer, but it's distributed among smaller vats. Okay, math breakover. I just had to get into it. According to a London Times article in 1795, Mew spent around 10,000 pounds building that one vat. That's about $1.8 million in today's money. In fact, it's so large that the day that he christened it, 200 people sat and dined inside of it with an additional 200 people standing there and toasting the great size of Mew's tank. So I'm assuming this was before they filled it with a liquid. What a a wasted opportunity to not swim inside of this giant beer pool. And see how many Irish car bombs you can fit inside of it. (laughs) I also realize I have to correct myself. An Irish car bomb also has a shot of um, Irish cream in it. You have to drink it before the cream curdles. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well... (laughs) I'm more curious how they fit the table in there, but you know. <laughs> yeah, they were yeah, dying. He's a crane, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm assuming this was way before they filled it with liquid. Mew's son, Sir Henry Mew, they were all sirs, by the way, they were knighted, hmm. could not quite measure up to his pappy. Instead of building one giant vat, he built two not quite as big, but still absurdly large vats. One held 567,000 and the other 504,000 gallons. Not to get too mathy again, but let's just say the 504,000 gallons is 5,376,012 ounce bottles of beer. Oh, that's all? That's all. That's all. (laughs) 
The Mew and Company Brewery, also known as Horseshoe Brewery, sat on a street corner within the densely populated neighborhood of St. Giles. This area, labeled a slum by many Londoners, was known for its poverty. October 14, 1814, seemed like just a typical Monday for the people living in the vicinity. Around 5 p.m. that evening, various residents were going about their routines. Eleanor Cooper, a teenage servant, scrubbed pots at an outdoor water pump. After putting her child down for a nap, Mary Banfield sat down to tea with her four-year-old daughter, Hannah. Three-year-old Sarah Batia was playing inside her house. Meanwhile, not far away, Anne Seville attended the wake of her two-year-old son, John, who had passed away the day before. Hmm. Four other mourners gathered alongside her to pay their respects. Now, I've given you a very detailed and very mathematical description of some of those vats. The one that exploded, while slightly smaller, was part of the same complex that was built by the younger Mew. It's safe to say that this could have been far more catastrophic, what I'm about to describe. The brewer's mentality favored constructing the largest and most impressive vat to increase production. And this goal, as you can imagine, was often at odds with safety measures. Money over safety? Never. If that doesn't happen now. Never! A newspaper article published six days after the October 14th incident detailed an inquest into the event. Mr. George Crick, a clerk at the Horseshoe Brew House, had faithfully served the brewery for nearly, nearly 17 years. So when he noticed that one of the large iron hoops around the vat had slipped off around 4.30, yeah, he didn't panic. George claims that this has happened uh, fairly frequently. Oh, good. Good. I... I would think this is concerning, but what do I know? I'm not a white British man in the 1800s. <laughs> Untouchable. <laughs> <laughs> the confidence they had, you know? <laughs> now, Georgie decided to mention this to his boss, who simply advised him to write a note for the person responsible to fixing the wrong and just leave it on their desk. Georgie did and continued with his usual routine. An hour later, he set out to leave the note for the responsible party to address the issue during the next shift. Now, this vat was not quite full. It contained under 200,000 gallons of beer, which has been brewing for about 10 months. In total, this vat had 22 hoops, including 7 that weighed over a ton each, and 15 that weighed around 700 pounds. Holy shit. He stood on a platform 30 feet above the vats, just a short distance of three yards from the vat when it exploded. Georgie claimed in his court deposition, no less, that the vat exploded, quote, without the smallest previous notice, unquote. I don't know, Georgie. The giant iron rung that weighs 700 pounds falling off might have been a teensy-weensy little notice that something was wrong. But I digress. Back to Georgie's deposition. Georgie said he started running but soon found himself in knee-high beer. He looked around and noticed that his brother was knocked over by a butt that lay on its side. Whose butt? (laughs) All right, so here's a sidebar. While it's extremely comical in my childish brain (laughs) to imagine random butts strewn around knocking people over. It happens to the best of us. (laughs) 
Some of us have got a little more cake than others. Yeah, yeah. Not me. <laughs> others. I, I, def- I definitely do. <laughs> yeah, you got some cake. I've seen it. <laughs> in the 1800s, a butt referred to a lot of things. And in this specific context, it meant the barrel that transported the beer from one place to another. They called that the butt. Well, that's the only way I'm referring to things <laughs> that hold beer from now on. Pass me one of those butts. <laughs> All right, sidebar over. (laughs) It gets better, I promise. (laughs) It always does. (laughs) The force of the beer gushing out of the fat knocked over other fats. In fact, it knocked over, quote, the cock out of a nearby vat. (laughs) So uh, I I need to know, do they usually just keep one cock in the vats or are there multiple cocks and just one cock fell out of the vat? Just one. <laughs> Just one. Okay. I, what is it? Is that enhance the flavor? Are these cocks taken from witches? <laughs> it's all coming together, man. It's a global conspiracy. I, I, are there? Is there oats in beer? There can be. All right. Oh, oh there you, my God! There we just saw the corn malt beer. <gasps> it's all That's coming together. That's the Glutenati's true plan. <laughs> it's the Glutenati's in it. If you don't know what we're talking about, listen to our witches episode, and then you understand what we're talking about <laughs> cocks and corn and oats and all these things. <laughs> witches. Well, I have no idea what cock refers to in this particular context. I mean, it can't mean that, and it surely can't mean a rooster either. Maybe, I mean, it's just interesting how words, how the meanings of words have changed over the years. Maybe cock means the valve or the spigot or the faucet looking thingy on the bottom of a barrel. Who are we to say that it isn't a cock? (laughs) (laughs) Until I have, I'm presented with evidence proving otherwise, I'm proceeding under the assumption that there are cocks in each of these barrels. Well, all right. By the way, I'm <laughs> quoting... why I don't drink beer anymore. <laughs> I'm quoting an actual newspaper here. It's not like th- this is... It's the British newspaper archive. It's not my words here. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, back to Georgie's deposition. He stated that the vat with the loose cock was releasing beer at a rate of roughly a barrel a minute. To cut the long story short, the sudden surge of beer triggered a uh, a chain reaction toppling adjacent vats. Georgie's deposition ended with the quote, The employees had so much business of their own to attend to, they never concerned themselves with what happened outside. And while the mayhem butts and cocks were being attended to inside the brewery, outside was just as chaotic. Bricks were raining down on tops of houses on Russell Street, which was to the immediate right of the brewery, and a deluge of beer knocked down walls. One source described a 15-foot-high wave of beer. Holy cow! Get out your surfboards. (laughs) That's why you need the floaties. (laughs) A wave of beer, cocks, and butts. That's the tagline for this episode. (laughs) I also have to say that I quickly Googled cocks in beer and cock ale was popular during this era and it is ale that a bag that is stuffed with a parboiled skinned and gutted cock with fruits and spices 
is that in? I will say that they mean rooster, but I think that's just as disgusting. <laughs> I'm still going to stick with the that it means like a valve or a spigot because it was knocked over and just the beer started gushing. Now this is where it gets darker. Elizabeth Smith, one of the mourners, was discovered beneath the wreckage of a first floor apartment. Aww. Not long after, they found Sarah Batia's body in a nearby house. Anne Seville was spotted, quote, floating amidst the butts, and poor Eleanor Cooper was crushed underneath a wall. Her body was found completely upright by the water pump. Hmm. According to the surgeon who was there, she was quite dead. That hmm. really makes you wonder how much medical training it takes to distinguish dead from quite dead, doesn't it? Hmm. Now, we're not taking the deaths here lightly. All of our comedy is related to the circumstances. The, the whole 15-foot wave of beer is just so absurd. It, it would be comical where death's not involved. Right. <laughs> it's still well, a little comical, but obviously not with the deaths. <laughs> Unperturbed by the overpowering stench, the rescuers waded through waist-high beer, desperately searching for survivors. The following day, they discovered the other mourners, Catherine Butler, Mary Mulvey, and three-year-old Thomas Murray. Mm. It took another 24 hours to locate Hannah Banfield's body after the initial vat explosion. Remarkably, her mother and younger sibling managed to hold on and survive. An eyewitness account was provided by an American who happened to be strolling down the street at that very moment. Quote, all at once I found myself borne onward with great velocity by a torrent which burst upon me so suddenly as almost to deprive me of breath. I mean, it's clearly a very colorful account. Imagine if this happened now. The eyewitness account would simply be, the wave knocked me down and I floated in the beer. Now, keep in mind, all of this happened before the era of sewers and drainage systems, which meant there was no easy escape for the spilled alcohol. Many individuals clambered onto tables and furniture to avoid drowning in a deluge as it flooded their cellar apartments. I'll be Arps. so sticky. <laughs> and smelly. Ugh. Oh, beer doesn't really smell bad. Until, I mean, oh, I once think. it goes bad, but like, like initially it just smells like yeast, like bread. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't smell that bad. I mean, I, I, it would start to smell bad over time for sure. But initially, I don't think it would smell too bad. <laughs> well, Londoners came in droves to witness the chaos with their own eyes. Fortunately, the crowd kept quiet so that the cries of trapped victims could be heard. And unfortunately, some people started charging the crowd money to see the damage. Of course. The neighborhood reeked of beer for months afterwards, in case you were wondering. Our obsession with the morbid is clearly nothing new here. All the victims were women and children. It was, after all, a time where men were still away at work. Londoners, moved by the somber spectacle, gathered to pay their respect for the eight departed souls. They opened their hearts and their wallets, join, or helping the families of the dead pay for the funerals. It's weird because it's, I mean, obviously just a sign of the times, but now that, that beer company would be paying a lot of money for the funerals and to the families in general for the damage caused. Oh, you just wait. You just wait. <laughs> Am I getting ahead of myself? As to whether Henry Mew joined the mourners and the donors, that's a question lost to the sands of time. 
Curiously, his company, despite the calamity, did not compensate nor donate to any of the victims. Uh (laughs) Aha. Oh, it gets even better. What is this, Amazon? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it gets better. Now, the newspaper article I refer to summarizes this inquest in which the jurors examined the bodies, the extent of the damage, they looked at the evidence and listened to statements given by witnesses. They found that the eight people that died died by, quote, casualty, accidentally, and by misfortune. Yeah, but not of their own. It's not like they were, it it was inflicted upon them. (laughs) Well, clearly this was a win for big business here. Hoorah. The brewery even petitioned Parliament for a rebate on the duties paid on the 23,000 pounds of lost beer. For shame. (laughs) Pounds as in the British pounds, not the weight pounds. And they received 7,300 pounds or a little under a million dollars back as refund of the taxes paid. Criminal. That, that, that's it. That was their punishment. They, they got their taxes back. Let's leave the beer talk behind and take a leap 50 years ahead in time as we journey from London to Dublin. Malone's bonded storehouse found its home in an area known as the Liberties a district with roots tracing back to medieval times. The Liberties hosted a myriad of major breweries and distilleries such as Guinness and Jameson, your favorites, mm. alongside, <laughs> Not pubs, <anymore. laughs> alongside pubs, various businesses, and outdoor pens for horses and pigs. Much like London's St. Giles, this part of the city was home to a significant population struggling with poverty. Now, within Malone's storehouse, about 5,000 barrels of aging whiskey and spirits were housed. Much like the London incident, I had to get newspapers at the time, and I found the, Ar- the Irish News Archive. Now, the newspaper report mentions that around 10 p.m. on Friday, June 18th, 1875, locals spotted a massive pink cloud rising from a fire at Mr. Malone's storehouse. Given the quantity of liquor inside, it's no surprise how quickly the fire engulfed the entire establishment. Interesting it was pink. I I have questions now. It's also 10 o'clock at night. See what happens. (laughs) Do you have to do it at night? Oh, so maybe it was just just normal smoke, pink with the (laughs) dusk. I've never been to Dublin, but it's definitely on my list. Same. I can't describe this scene any better than this particular journalist's account, whose name is unfortunately lost to history. So I'm just going to quote his or her description here. I did remove some sentences just to keep it concise. The burning whiskey poured literally in torrents from the doors and windows of the burning pile and rushed down streets in flaming and lava-like streams. A vast crowd had, of course, collected but they had to fly for their lives before the blazing streams of whiskey hissing along. The flames rose 30 feet as it poured along, lapping with its fiery tongue house after house. Wow. Is that, is that not just so vividly descriptive? <laughs> it, it really is. It makes you wonder. I don't know how high of an alcohol content something has, has, has to be for it to be flammable, because I know some things aren't flammable, and I'm very curious I mean, a lot. That's, yeah, that's, that's intense. <laughs> so our producer just looked up that it's 50% or 100 proof for it to be flammable. Thank you, producer Anna. Just a heads up, ethanol is considered a flammable liquid and you never, ever, ever use water to put it out. Mm-mm. It's considered a class B fire. 
this is your PSA for the day. Do not spray water on liquor or gasoline. Fortunately, the town's firefighters were well aware of this fact and managed to contain the fire by 4 a.m., although not before 35 houses suffered severe damage. In case you forgot, the fire started at 10. That's, honestly, for this time period, that's, I I still feel like that's quite impressive. Um, Well, you you haven't heard how they put it out yet, so hold your comments. The astute fire marshal recognized that water was not an option, so he directed his team to construct barriers made of gravel and dirt to halt the flow. However, the whiskey managed to seep through. He then instructed his team to gather horse manure and build additional barriers, eventually coating the streets with it. Surprisingly, this unconventional strategy proved effective as the, horse ex- uh, as the horse excrement absorbed the spirits and successfully extinguished the fire. That's awesome. <laughs> I probably didn't smell great. It's in June. Yeah. Flambeed horse poop in June. Mm. In a remarkable act of compassion, someone remembered the animal pens and released some of the creatures in the path of the burning river. Picture yourself as a spectator in that moment, watching a fiery river of whiskey and then spotting galloping horses in the distance, followed by a troop of squealing pigs. (laughs) It's quite astonishing that no one interpreted this as the end of the world. Even more astounding, there were no fire-related fatalities, no smoke inhalation, no burn injuries, and no heart attacks. Wow. Especially at night, as surprising everyone got up and out of their houses in time with 35 of them being burned. Yeah. The Irish news article that I've been quoting from did detail a peculiar observance, kind of like an afterthought. So after mentioning the running horses and the squealing pigs, the journalist states that it should be mentioned by now that some of the crowd indulged in excess and used their shoes and hats as cups. Oh, and Mr. Malone was covered by insurance, don't worry. I wonder if this is the same Mr. Malone that founded the Malone town that's about an hour to the west of me. Probably not. This sounds like a very There are a lot of Irish up here. They could be. All right. Now, I looked at another newspaper, the Irish Times, and that one detailed that the flow measured two feet wide and six inches deep. This article, published three days after the event, also mentioned some in the crowd partaking in libations. Quote, It is stated that caps, porringers, and other vessels were in great requisition to scoop up the liquor as it flowed from the burning premises. And disgusting as it may seem, some fellows were observed to take off their boots and use them as drinking cups. I know people who would do that. Ew. Not me, but I do know people who would do it. First of all, that liquid is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> they sell those in bars sometimes. <laughs> Not while it's been dragging in the street covered with horse manure. Alcohol kills all bacteria. If it's, if it's hot enough to catch a flame, it's hot enough to kill the germs. Horse poop. Horse poop. <laughs> right, now, I previously mentioned that there were no fatalities directly caused by the fire. But there were fatalities related to alcohol consumption. Tragically, 13 people lost their lives due to alcohol poisoning from, quote, drinking freely of the derelict whiskey. Holy shit! 13 <laughs> people drank too much of the, of the ground whiskey? 
of the ground that's, whiskey rolling in poop. <laughs> that's incredible. It wasn't the poop that killed him. It was alcohol poisoning, which means they drank too much of it. <laughs> that's, that is so wretchedly gross. Oh that my God. Means that they drank so much of it in spite of it tasting like poop. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> to be fair, if you like Jameson, I'm not shitting on Jameson. I used to drink it. Please, no one be offended. But if you like Jameson, <laughs> it's not like a little bit of poo-poo is not going to make it taste any worse. <laughs> it's liquor. Liquor doesn't taste good. <laughs> when the mayor was asked about this, he said that the unhappy overdose deaths would have happened in, quote, any city where there was a tendency to indulge immoderately in drink. Answer Irish joke. He added, in the present case, the unfortunate victims could ap- apparently could not restrain themselves, as I understand, from the burning fluid. Clearly, he cared so much about his people. Now, the exact cause of the fire remains a mystery, but not improbable. Bottled whiskey intended for retail sale is typically less flammable because it undergoes dilution, resulting in a lower alcohol content. However, whiskey stored in casks remains undiluted high-proof, and highly combustible. The value of the lost whiskey was 54,000 pounds or a bit under $10.5 million. Oof. Now, can you imagine how much they drank? (laughs) A lot. (laughs) All right, well, let's fast forward one more time. This time it's going to be 44 years, and we're going to go from Europe to one of my favorite cities in the U.S., Boston. I love everything about that city, except for one player on their hockey team. I digress. I'm just going to settle for imagining him skating on a sheet of ice covered in molasses. While that may be far-fetched and totally random, it was very possible on one cold morning in 1919. On January 15th, workers were sitting down to take their lunch break. The high was 43 degrees. Our listeners in the South might think that's cold, but that's actually unseasonably warm for the Northeast. It is. Now keep that temperature in mind as it will be very relevant later on. Back then, newspapers were published twice a day and had morning and afternoon editions. So let's journey back to the Boston Globe's afternoon edition on that very fateful day, mere hours after the explosion. Yes, that's right. Within five hours of the explosion happening, newspapers were already out. In 1919, I'm just fascinated by that. The front page of the newspaper had two headlines. South Boston woman charged with murder and molasses tank blows up causing widespread damage to property. If you're curious, because you know I am, let (laughs) me tell you about 50-year-old Nora Lee who was charged with the death of her husband. She beat him with a teapot, then used a hammer to puncture the gas pipe, and then she told the police he committed suicide. (laughs) I think maybe if you're going to do that, don't first bludgeon him because that's suspicious. Usually people don't bludgeon themselves. With a teapot. (laughs) With a teapot. All right, sorry. Back to molasses. The whole point of this article. (laughs) The uh, article explains that a 50-foot-tall tank near the Boston waterfront holding three to four million gallons of molasses exploded at 12.30 p.m. on Wednesday. The tank, owned by the U.S. Industrial Alcohol Company, wasn't fully filled. The thick goo flowed for blocks and was even three feet deep in some places. What a horrible thing to drown in. (laughs) 
Oh, can you imagine? It's like quicksand, but worse and sticky. Anyway, sorry. 43 (laughs) degrees. Oh, oh. The article actually says that the liquid was, quote, liberated. That's the word they used. (laughs) It was screaming, freedom, as it rolled down the street. (laughs) I really do love old-timey newspapers. I think people wrote so much better back then. Oh, for sure. Now, another article on the same day lists the identified and the unidentified dead. Four people were so completely covered with molasses that their identification was impossible at that point. Okay, wait, hang on though. Molasses doesn't move that quickly. (laughs) Slow as molasses. So like, I'm just trying to... (laughs) I'm assuming that these men were like right outside of the tank as it exploded and were maybe knocked unconscious because all I can think otherwise is like, (laughs) oh no, it's going to catch up to me if I walk any faster. Like, I just, I don't know. I have a hard time. I, I explain the science behind it in a little bit. Okay. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the Boston Clopes article on the next day gave gives a grave assessment of the damage. Six wooden buildings were demolished. Public works horses were smothered in their stalls. Eleven oh. dead and over fifty injured in just the first twenty four hours. Holy shit. The a lot of molasses. <laughs> yeah, three to four million gallons worth. I know, but I just, it's, you know, after hearing about all the beer, it doesn't seem like that much molasses. <laughs> the Red Cross women, firemen, and sailors were called out for their heroic work trudging through the thick sludge to save the living and recover the dead. Some sailors were positioned to keep onlookers away from the dangerous scene. Other sailors admirably plunged into the wreckage to rescue people. And other, again, this is a newspaper quote, scandally clad sailors were covered in a thick coating within minutes. Mm. I don't know why they were scantily clad in 43 degree weather. Maybe to prevent, I feel like clothing when you're swimming through molasses probably is worse, more of a drag. I mean, doesn't molasses harden when it's cold? It's it's very slow. I, not, I wouldn't say hard like like a shell, but... Definitely, I think clothing would make moving through it harder. All right. So I guess that makes sense why they stripped. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're coming, coming back from a party. Who knows? Maybe. The article even mentions that the women of the Red Cross were providing hot coffee to the workers and the imprisoned men. You know, those Ooh, stuck in molasses. hot coffee with a thumbful of molasses. Mm. Good combo. Initial estimates placed the molasses losses at $250,000 or $4.5 million in today's money. The New York Times gives more details about the incident itself. It claims that people had less than an instant's warning as the top of the tank was blown into the air. The circular tank broke into two pieces that flew in opposite directions. One landed on a city building and the other on a firehouse. Some soldiers, who had recently returned from World War I, described the sound of the rivets shooting out of the framework like that of bullets. Holy cow. Witness accounts differ to the size of molasses wave. Some estimated it 15 feet, while others say the brown wave was 50 feet tall. Regardless of the wave size, the ensuing flood moved at 35 miles per hour. I rescind my mocking tone. Molasses can be quite deadly. I am impressed. The fastest human being 
Usain Bolt reached an astonishing 27 miles per hour for a very brief moment during one of his fastest races. The average house cat can hit 30 miles per hour during the zoomies. <laughs> Is that real? Is that true? For real? Well, not, I don't know about the zoomies part, but the average house cat 30. can hit 30 miles per hour, yes. Oh, mine cannot. <laughs> <laughs> mine can That's crazy, though. Holy cow. <laughs> Now, think about molasses in a jar, as you so aptly told us about earlier. You're trying to scoop it out. It does not come out at 35 miles per hour. I mean, what happens to slow as molasses? What gives, Ellie? What gives? Just, I guess, mass, quantity? (laughs) Well, in 2016, the mystery was finally solved. At a meeting of the American Physical Society, several scientists presented their theory. When the new shipment of molasses arrived from the Caribbean and met the cold air of Boston, it changed the viscosity of the syrup, making it thicker, quicker, and more fatal. Had this now happened, that needs to be the sale, selling point <laughs> on, on the jar. Thicker, <laughs> quicker, more fatal. I don't think they'd sell as much, though. I'd buy it. I'd buy two jars. Great gifts. <laughs> yeah, everyone's getting fatal <laughs> molasses for Christmas. Now, had this incident happened in the summer, the scientists surmised that this would not have been as deadly or as destructive. While 43 is unseasonably warm for Boston, it's still pretty cold, you know, especially when you compare it to the Caribbean. Oh, for sure. The viscous goo traversed several blocks within seconds due to the pressure of being expelled from the tank and then began to thicken pretty quickly due to the cold air. And that's how it engulfed many people who were unfortunately unable to swim to safety. It's like when you heat up the chocolate shell for your ice cream and then you pour it on the ice cream and it hardens right away. Like that. Just like that. Yes. (laughs) I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. That sounds terrible. I mean, I'm hungry now and I'm going to go downstairs and have ice cream after this. (laughs) (laughs) This is uh, coming out right around Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving, everybody. (laughs) Another researcher found that the tank itself was made of subpar material that was not thick enough to hold the liquid. The fracture likely began, he hypothesized, near a rivet directly above the 20-inch manhole in the tank. The tank's repeated use contributed to its quick deterioration. And based on court evidence, the tank was never even inspected. In fact, the tank was already leaking as kids would stand beneath the tank during the summer collecting pails of sticky sweet molasses. It wasn't inspected? But this is America. We do things right here. This is 1919 America. (laughs) We were doing things even more right then than we were now. Is that before or after the Depression? Because the depression was well, the depression was in the twenties. Yeah, Yeah. so a little before (laughs) the depression was nineteen twenty nine. Eventually, twenty one people died as a result of this incident. In two thousand three, Stephen Puglio wrote a book outlining this tragedy and named every single person who died in this incident. The book is called Dark Tide. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, go to boston.com. The link is on our on our website, and read the names of the of the victims who tragically perished. Let's not forget, they were innocent victims of corporate greed. Similar to the other incidents I talked about, those who died were mostly of a lower socioeconomic class. They were blue-collar workers. It took four days to find all the victims and another two weeks to clean up the mess. Overall, 300 people volunteered over 87,000 man-hours to help. 
Wow. But unlike the other two incidents, there was a win for humanity as the company was found liable in court. Albeit it took six years. Go America! We do that right sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) Even though they spent almost a million dollars in today's money on expert witness fees, the U.S. industrial alcohol company lost. In total, 125 individual lawsuits were filed against the owners of the tank. There were over 3,000 witnesses deposed and nearly 45,000 pages of testimony (gasps) and arguments recorded. 45,000 pages of testimony? Was it double-spaced? Was it two-sided? These are very important questions. Was it handwritten? This was 1919. It's not like they had worked. I hope it was typed out at least. There were so many lawyers on both sides of the courtroom that the court didn't even have room for everybody. Imagine being the lawyer that's arguing that a company didn't do anything wrong when it drowned people in its molasses. Well, they said it was a bomb. They said it was the anarchists. The anarchists who, the anti-molasses anarchists? (laughs) The the very same ones. (laughs) Give it it another 20 years, they'd say it was the communists. (laughs) The judge did not agree with them. He did not find evidence of a bomb and instead ruled it was negligence. Settlements for more than 100 claims were made out of court and the company ultimately paid out over $10.5 million to all the victims in 2023 money. Wow. Now, believe it or not, these three are not the only ones I found. There are just so many that we're definitely going to have to do part two. There's the Molten Candy River in New York that blocked the sewers. That was blamed on spontaneous combustion. Hmm. Ellie, do, do you consider 1991 to be the olden days? I think so. Kind of otherwise, my but it, it does because otherwise my line won't flow. So yes, you okay, do. Okay, we'll go with. It. I mean, it was the 1900s. You know, <laughs> yeah, the exactly. prior century. In the olden days of the late 1900s, a 500,000 square foot warehouse in Wisconsin, full of butter, cheese, and meats, caught on fire and produced flames 300 feet high. A fireman fireman remembers wading through hot butter. The fire raged for eight days before it was put out. Okay, but hear me out. Have you ever had fried provolone? Yes. It's delicious. (laughs) I don't eat cheese anymore, but I remember how good it was. (laughs) Don't knock it till you try it. Well, the butter, cheese, and meats just sounds like a fondue don't. Or a fondant, if you will. (laughs) Wait. No, wait. Don't do that yet. Oh, okay. I won't I wanted to correct myself. Well, I think I I understood that um, I was incorrect, and it would have been 40 years before they would have blamed the communists. Oh, yes. That's the 50s. Yeah. Red scare. No, it would have been 30 years. Because it's 1919 to 1950, something. Okay. I was almost right. (laughs) It's kind of hard to believe there were so many food and drink-related typhoons. I'm going to regret asking, but please tell me this doesn't still happen. Sorry to break it to you, but there's still plenty of non-water flooding, albeit not as deadly as before. In fact, let's go to Norway because deep down, I just really want to go live there. Same. So I searched for non-water floods in Norway and I hit gold. 
And by gold, I mean cheese. Ooh. <laughs> in January 2013, in one of the most northern towns in Arctic Norway, 27 tons of caramelized brown goat cheese, known as Brunost, caught fire mm-hmm. inside of a tunnel. Ooh. Well, how, why was it in a tunnel? Was well, it traveling of, somewhere? They, they have a lot of tunnels up there. I, as somebody who was just there, they- Was it a storage a tunnel? tunnel? Nope, just a tunnel. Tunnel, tunnel. Ah, uh, okay. So it was in transportation. Yeah. yeah I wasn't sure if it was just like resting in a tunnel. Oh, no, sorry. Did I not say that it was moving on a truck? It was on a truck. I might have sorry. missed it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that makes more sense. <laughs> nobody was hurt. But then again, this is Arctic Norway. So there was nobody there anyway. Now, this, this caramelized brown goat cheese, Brunost, caught fire while it's inside the tunnel on the truck. The tunnel was closed for weeks for repairs and the cheese burned for five entire days, emitting toxic gases. This very specific cheese has a high concentration of fat and sugar, and when it caught on fire, the cheese acted like gasoline. Like I said, thankfully, nobody was hurt, and the head of the Roads Administration commented that he, quote, didn't know that brown cheese could burn so well. So the toxic gases, is it just like carbon dioxide, like a byproduct of a fire? Or is there something in the cheese that can't be burned? Because that's kind of concerning because cheese often gets toasted. Now, this is a different type of cheese. Like they really go into details of explaining the, the fact that they, it's either they remove the way or it's all the way. I, I forget which one it is. Hmm. It's the way, apparently. This is the way. Yes. The W-E-T-Y <laughs> way. <laughs> Well, in 2017, in Lipetsk, Western Russia, a Pepsi warehouse collapsed, spilling over seven and a half million gallons of soft beverages and fruit juice. Again, thankfully, no fatalities were recorded. And because this is 2017, there are pictures. Google Russia Pepsi warehouse spill and you'll find them all. Wow. And literally two months before we recorded this episode, there was a red wine spill in Portugal. Sao Lorenzo de Barrio, uh, de Beiro, housed two tanks full of red wine because of a government crisis distillation program. I, I don't really know what that is. Government crisis. But they had a huge surplus of wine. 581,000 gallons poured out of the two burst tanks, which were housed on top of a hill. Why? Why always? <laughs> <laughs> Set up this way. (laughs) The raging river of red wine was captured in 4K on social media for all to see. I'm still struggling to get government crisis distillation program. I just, those words are all words. (laughs) I just don't understand how they fit together. And like, I just, I need more information. I shall be Googling. (laughs) If you ever look at the video, which is fascinating, it literally looks like a river of blood. Ooh. And it's moving pretty damn quickly, most likely faster than 35 miles an hour, faster than molasses. Ooh. Probably easier to swim in, though. <laughs> I don't know. It's going down, so you might, it, it's going downhill, so. I would say it'll probably still easier than molasses. Ah, I'm not a good swimmer. According so to I, the way the molasses was described, <laughs> <laughs> the fatal molasses. I can't speak for other countries, but the Boston molasses flood had a significant impact on U.S. government regulations and safety standards. 
engineers and architects started paying more attention to the design and construction of the industrial structures to ensure their safety and structural integrity. The disaster prompted increased safety inspections for industrial facilities in Boston and in various other cities. Regular inspections became more common, ensuring that potential hazards and structural weaknesses were identified and addressed. The flood also resulted in numerous lawsuits which set legal precedents in terms of liabilities. Companies were held more accountable for safety and maintenance, and this had an indirect influence on corporate practices and attitudes towards safety. And while I'm against government interference, especially in the lives of people, I think I could get on board with those standards. Totally. That's good for them. Even though there are still crazy floods out there, I would chalk this up as a win since the number of fatalities drastically decreased and government regulations did help protecting the workers from mishaps like this. Well, okay, fine. They protect the workers more than before. Too long didn't listen? In summary, a neighborhood in London was flooded with beer in 1814, which led to the death of eight and alcoholism of many, I'm sure. 50 years later, Dublin was flooded by whiskey, which is very flammable, and 13 people died of alcohol poisoning, not from any fire-related fatalities. Molasses flooded the town of Boston and killed 21 people, either through asphyxiation or by rubble. But since then, government regulations have come to save the day. Yeah, I know, I don't want government interference, but when it comes to food, yes, please. That's all we got for you today. Join us every other week for another story from the Annals of History. If you enjoy this, please go on and rate us on your favorite podcast channels. We really cannot do this without your support. And we want to hear from you. So send us an email and let us know. You can find us online at O the G-O-D-P-O-D, O the God Pod on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Threads. Follow us, let us know what you think. And like Kinsey said, don't forget to give us a five-star review. You know what, Ellie? Maybe the good old days weren't so good after all.